religious leaders of Israel were plotting behind the scenes to find a way to get Jesus really murdered. And why did they do this? Well, this was right after Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath. The Pharisees made up their minds that that's all they needed to see. They decided that Jesus wasn't the Messiah, but they said he was a sinful man, a man who violated the law of Moses. He broke the Sabbath. He must die. And so they were determined to do that. But their rejection of him as Messiah and even the plot to to take his life didn't stop there. They still needed to come up with some kind of an explanation as to why this man, who wasn't, in their opinion, the Messiah, could do supernatural, miraculous works. He still had this amazing power to do miracles and cast out demons, and they needed to explain why, if he wasn't the Messiah. And so, because they could not deny these supernatural works, the reality of his miracles, they simply reinterpreted them. what people will do when their paradigm or worldview is threatened with the truth. Welcome to Verse by Verse, where we are in a series of messages titled, Words Have Meaning. It's taken from Matthew chapter 12. Our teacher, Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida, is just about ready to start our teaching session today. Uh, He still has a few more stretches to do. He likes to be thoroughly warmed up before he starts teaching. Now, as I said at the beginning, people who have their worldview or paradigm threatened will go to great lengths to put a stop to that threat. As we saw in Matthew chapter 12, a group of people listening to Jesus started to ask themselves if just maybe this was the Messiah. The religious leaders were so threatened by that that they declared that Jesus cast out demons by the power of Satan, which of course is absurd as Jesus pointed out to the crowd. Today we will pick up Pastor Steve's teachings as he asks this question. Now, why would the people in Jerusalem be so determined to have the Romans crucify Jesus? I mean, why why do they really care? Why would they be in such a, a passionate fervor to make sure he was crucified? Well, the Bible says that they were following the dictates of their spiritual and religious leaders. According to Matthew 27 20, it was the religious leaders of the nation who stirred the crowd up that day and, and told them to call for Jesus to be crucified and persuade Pontius Pilate to put Jesus to death. And this outcry for Christ's crucifixion was really the final step, final step needed to bring to fruition their earlier decision by the religious leaders to have Jesus put to death. As you'll recall, we might as well turn there, Matthew chapter 12. As you'll recall, back in Matthew chapter 12, verse 14, it says, But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. So long before Jesus was crucified, the Pharisees and other religious leaders of Israel were plotting behind the scenes to find a way to get Jesus really murdered. And why did they do this? Well, this was right after Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath. The Pharisees made up their minds that that's all they needed to see. They decided that Jesus wasn't the Messiah, but they said he was a sinful man, a man who violated the law of Moses. He broke the Sabbath. He must die. And so they were determined 
to do that. But their rejection of him as Messiah and even the plot to, to take his life didn't stop there. They still needed to come up with some kind of an explanation as to why this man, who wasn't, in their opinion, the Messiah, could do supernatural, miraculous works. He still had this amazing power to do miracles and cast out demons, and they needed to explain why, if he wasn't the Messiah. And so, because they could not deny these supernatural works, the reality of his miracles, they simply reinterpreted them. They put a new twist on them, and they decided that he must be doing these miracles by the power of Satan. They saw these miracles, the people saw the miracles, they couldn't deny it, they just reinterpreted them. And it's that very accusation of him being satanic that forms the heart of the passage that we are about to study this week. I want to read to you Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 32. Now, we started this last week. We just sort of dented it, but today we'll we'll finish the whole thing. Starting in verse 22, we read this. Then the demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him, so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is just laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, last week, as I said we began to study these verses and we discovered that in response to Christ casting a demon out of a man and restoring his sight and speech, the crowd who witnessed this were just amazed, which means, as I told you, they were astounded. They, we would say they were blown away. They, they were just, uh, just amazed at what he did. And so they wondered out loud, could this really be their long-awaited Messiah? They said in verse 23, this man cannot be the son of David. Can he? And the way that this is worded, as we, as we discovered last week, the way that this is worded in the original Greek language indicates that the people who asked this were skeptical and they expected a negative answer. Yet they still had not come to any absolute conclusion. They still had not made up their minds. They still wondered if he was the Messiah, even, they, even though they didn't think he was. Is it possible that he might be? That's the thought here. Now, when the Pharisees heard the people debating amongst themselves this question about Christ's Messiahship and kingship, they jumped in. They jumped in out of fear of losing control and power over the people. If the people had come to the conclusion that Jesus was the Messiah, the Pharisees then because they were very, very threatened by this, they publicly charged him with being an agent of Satan and casting out demons by the power of 
the devil. And so, watch this. It's in response to this very wicked accusation and blasphemous charge against him that Jesus launches into a defense of his messiahship. He gives several arguments to prove not only that he's not satanic, but also that he's the true messiah and king. Now, I I want you to recall and understand why he did this. The Lord was not defending himself for the sake of defending himself. He rarely did this. His primary purpose in defending himself was to help those in the crowd who had not yet come to any strong conclusion about him to know the truth. He was not doing this for the sake of the Pharisees. They had already made up their minds. It was for the sake of this crowd of people who were undecided and unconverted. And I think that's precisely why these verses are recorded for us in Holy Scripture, because there are many people just like that today. They're familiar with Christ, but they're undecided. They're unconverted. They've seen evidence, and they are in danger of having their hearts come to a point where there is a sin hardness of heart, just like the Pharisees. And Jesus said, if you come to that point, you will be like the Pharisees. You will never be forgiven because you have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. And I'll explain what that is as we move through this passage. But that's the danger that he's talking about. And that's why this is such a critical passage of Scripture. And I might add, so relevant. Because there are, there are some who may be here today, certainly some listening to this in some other setting, who have not come to a firm conclusion about him. And it's those undecided people that this passage is really addressing because there is a grave danger they face of hardening their hearts to Christ, coming to a point in their lives where they will make a permanent and a rather conclusive rejection of Jesus and that rejection and unbelief will never be reversed. Never be reversed. And that's why it is in this context that Jesus spoke about the sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. A a sin that Jesus said will never, ever be forgiven. What the Lord was saying is that the Pharisees who had accused him of being satanic were guilty of this very sin. They had made their final decision. They had made a permanent decision about Christ. That decision would never be reversed. That decision means that they would never experience divine forgiveness. And for over 2,000 years, these men have been in hell thinking about this. It's a sobering thought. Christ was right there. They saw him heal. They saw him cast out demons. They heard him teach. They could touch him if they wanted to. They decided he was satanic, and they have forever and eternity to think about that decision and that wicked accusation. So for the sake of the undecided but still unconverted, Jesus lays out several arguments to prove that he was not satanic, but he was indeed the true Messiah. And if you are one of those folks who have never trusted Christ, you are unconverted, you're not decided yet, you need to listen very closely to this passage to hear what God has to say, because this may indeed This could be your last opportunity to trust Christ because before hardness sets in. Now, last week we looked at two of the arguments and we'll look at at two more today. But the first argument Jesus gave the Pharisees to prove that he wasn't satanic was he told them their accusation was absolutely illogical. It was absurd. It was ridiculous. In verses 25 and 26, he gave them a, a, a basic truism, a common sense truism, which they understood. He said this, and knowing their thoughts, he said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. Any city or house divided against itself will not stand. 
If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Since it's a well-known truth that kingdoms that fight against themselves are always diminished and always weakened, Jesus is saying it is illogical. It is absurd to think that Satan would fight against himself by using someone like me to cast out demons. It doesn't make any sense. In other words, it simply doesn't make sense that Satan would intentionally try to destroy his empire by having one of his agents cast out demons from people that he possesses. It's so absurd, it's preposterous. And Jesus is saying in it, it's false. When you think this thing through logically, it doesn't add up. That's the first argument he gave. The second argument that Jesus gave to the Pharisees to prove that he was not satanic was this. Not only was their accusation illogical, it was also inconsistent with their own beliefs. They were totally inconsistent. And he tells us this in verse 27. He said to them, if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, remember Beelzebul simply is another name, a derogatory name for Satan, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they'll be your judges. The Lord reminded the Pharisees that some of their former students, whom he called your sons, doesn't mean their biological sons, just means your, your students, kind of like saying sons of the prophets. It just means uh, a group of, of prophets who learned under other prophets. So these are sons who have uh, sons of the Pharisees who were engaged in a work of exorcism, just like Jesus was. That's what Jesus is reminding the Pharisees of. Some of your former students carry on a ministry of exorcism. Now, whether or not these men really were able to cast out demons is not the issue even being addressed here. It's not even being addressed here. The important thing to understand is that the Pharisees believed that these men cast out demons by the Spirit of God. That's the important thing. As I said, whether they did that or not is not the issue. The issue is that the Pharisees believed that they did. And the point that Jesus is making to them is this. If you believe that your students cast out demons by divine power, then isn't it inconsistent of you to believe that I cast out demons by Satan's power? And the answer is, of course it's inconsistent. Why would you say their students do it this way, but Jesus does it another way? It's totally inconsistent, and the reason it's inconsistent is because these men were haters of Christ. They were prejudiced. They were biased. They were looking for something to come up with, to charge him with. They hadn't thought this thing through. They were totally inconsistent, and they hated him. These men were not those who considered factual information, they were, they were like people today who say, don't share with me the facts, my mind's already made up. And that's exactly what they were like. Their minds were already convinced that Christ wasn't the Messiah. They're not willing to hear about any clear objective evidence that might help to convince him that he is the truth. But listen, here's something important. Even though the Pharisees would not consider any objective evidence, and they would not, they weren't interested in no matter what Jesus said to them, wasn't going to change their mind. But for the sake of the still undecided crowd of people, the Lord proceeds to give them objective evidence. Not for the Pharisees, even though he may have been looking at them and speaking directly to them. It was for the sake of the crowd who had gathered around and, and was listening to this conversation. He gave them objective evidence in order to help them see that he was the true king who cast out demons by the Spirit of God. And it's this objective evidence 
that forms the third argument given by Christ to prove that the Pharisees were absolutely wrong in their wicked accusation. First he told them they were illogical. Next he said they were inconsistent. And now the third argument that Jesus uses to prove to the Pharisees that their accusation was wrong is he tells them their accusation ignored the evidence that he was the true king. It absolutely ignored it. Well, what evidence is he talking about? Well, let's see. Verse 28 says this, But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The Lord pointed out to the Pharisees that if he expelled demons by God's Spirit, and note this, the if here is not the if of uncertainty, as if he's saying, well, maybe I did, maybe I didn't. That's that's not the thought. The thought, the thought is this. This is actually the case. Instead of the word if, just put the word since there, because that's what he means. In other words, he's saying, since I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then there's only one conclusion to make about me, that I am the true king, and therefore the kingdom of God has come to you. See, what Jesus wants them to understand is that since their accusation that he is an agent of Satan doesn't make any sense, and it really didn't, then the only thing that does make sense is that he must be the true Messiah and king. And if that's the case, then he's doing his miracles by God's spirit. And therefore, the exorcisms that they are seeing are, note this, demonstrations of his kingdom power. Now, let me explain something that's important, because the Jewish people that day understood exactly what he was saying. It is important to understand that every Jewish person of that era knew that one of the ways they could identify the Messiah is by the miracles that he would do. It's not the only way. They would certainly have to check out his credentials based on scripture. Where was he born? What was he like? Whose lineage was he in? But one of the ways that they could identify the true Messiah when he came was by the miracles that he would perform. And that is precisely why prophecies such as Isaiah 35, 5 and 6 are so important. We read this. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy, for waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Isaiah said, and predicted that when the Messiah arrived, the people could absolutely know who he was because he would come doing these types of miracles, specific miracles. Like what? Well, he already said he would heal the blind, he would heal the deaf, the lame, the mute. And those are precisely the kinds of miracles that Jesus did. Notice that Christ never did any sensational miracle. He never did a miracle that would put people in in awe like a performance. He never hurled mountains into the, the sea. He never took a star and moved it in the sky. He never turned the, the moon to another shade. He performed miracles of compassion upon those who were physically afflicted. Even when some Pharisees, and we'll see this later in Matthew 12, when some Pharisees came to him and said, Show us a sign. Jesus rejected that. So the only sign you'll get is the sign of Jonah, which he's talking about his resurrection. There were no sensational signs, only miracles of compassion. Why? Because that's what Isaiah said. That's what other prophets said. 
Now, in all fairness, we should say, and I think this helps to understand and bring some things together, that the prophecy that Isaiah gave in chapter 35 is really not about Christ's first coming. It's about his second coming. When he comes again to judge the nations of the world, he will establish his physical kingdom on earth for a thousand years. We refer to that as the millennial reign of Christ. There is a coming future kingdom in which Jesus will reign literally and physically from this earth in Jerusalem. He will rule the nations of the world. That's specifically what Isaiah is referring to. That's why there will be streams in the desert. The desert does not have streams. I was just there about a year ago. There are no streams in the desert unless they are kind of an oasis. But when he comes, he will perform also those miracles. Now watch this. When Jesus came the first time, the miracles that he did were done in order to authenticate him as the king by giving, watch this, Israel, the Jewish people, a taste and a demonstration of kingdom power which would be in full force during his millennial reign. They just got a taste of it, just a little bit of of a taste. And seeing him do these miracles, they should have been convinced that he was their Messiah king, because that's what the Bible says. In other words, these miracles uh, that were given to the Jewish people were given as demonstration of their king's sovereign power, and they indicated that the kingdom of God was in their midst because their king was in their midst. See, it's important to understand that even though Christ's full reign as king during the millennial kingdom has not yet taken place, it didn't take place In the days of our Lord's ministry, it has not taken place yet. There is a sense in which his kingdom had, at his first coming, come to earth as he reigned over those who followed him. Understand this, wherever the king is present, that's where the kingdom is. That's where the kingdom is. There is a spiritual aspect of the kingdom now, wherever Christ reigns. If he reigns in your heart, you can say the kingdom has come. But that doesn't mean the fullness of the kingdom has come. There's still a physical aspect of that. And that's precisely what Jesus is talking about. The people should have understood that the king was in their midst because he was demonstrating kingdom power in healing people and casting out demons. So it's absolutely correct when Jesus said, "Then God, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come. The miracles Indicated that. And that's precisely why the crowd of people who observed him casting out a demon, they said, could this possibly be the Messiah? Could this be David's son? They understood the implications of the miracles. That's why they were asking that question. But the Pharisees insisted that Christ's miracles were not the action of God's king, but the work of Satan's agents. And so Jesus proceeds to give the people some very tangible evidence to convince them that he is the true king by informing them about his obvious power and authority over Satan and his evil kingdom. Notice verse 29, a very, very interesting story that Jesus gave. He said, Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? With these two sentences, very brief sentences, Jesus gave a little story. Really, we could call it a mini parable. It's just a small, tiny parable in order to illustrate an obvious truth. Folks, this is not very difficult. You'll see when we go through this. This is very, very easy to understand. And that truth being that his miracles demonstrated that he's more powerful than Satan. 
As we wrap up today's verse-by-verse broadcast, it is important to understand that every Jewish person of that era knew that one of the ways they could identify the Messiah would be by the miracles that he would do. Pastor Steve reminded us of what Isaiah wrote in Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 and 6. He said, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. Of course, for the Pharisees, that just wasn't enough. So when some Pharisees said, Show us a sign, Jesus said, The only sign you will get is the sign of Jonah. Now We could spend quite a lot of time discussing how obvious all of that seems to us today. But instead, I'm going to remind you that you can sign up for the Verse by Verse podcast at versebyverseradio.org. Look for the podcast link, follow the instructions. Having the podcast is a great way to go back and review some of the things that you have heard on today's program. We're out of time, but please join us for the next Verse by Verse.